Good morning. We have a few announcements. Feeding the homeless this Wednesday. We were off last Wednesday, but back on this Wednesday, we take the reusable grocery bags, fill them with food and water, and then go out to the camps and meet them where they're at. Um, and the bags are just a tool to get us kind of in the door or in the into the camp. Um, and then we just get to spend time and pray with them and just listen to them and, and hear about what's going on in their lives. Um, so... We're doing that on Wednesdays, if you're interested. The next women's Bible study is October 20th, so it won't be this Thursday like it normally is because we have the Refresh Conference, but it'll be the next one, the next scheduled one. Yeah, Yeah. so the 20th at 6 p.m. here. The next men's study is Saturday, October 15th. At 9 a.m. And that's at the Starbucks at Parker and Hess. Say that again. (laughs) The next youth night is October 13th, 6 p.m. here at the house. And then October 22nd um, in Elizabeth at the Harvest Bible Church. They're doing the 5K fun run. And all the benefits go to the Alternatives Pregnancy Center. Alternatives is a, a pregnancy center that helps guide men and women um, to alternatives other than abortion. So there's that, October 22nd. And then see you at the poll. We had that this last Wednesday. Yeah. Quite a few kids showed up, which was great. Yeah. Look at all those kids. There's my face. Yeah, there's half your face, huh? It's like your profile. It was pretty cool because we had one circle and then we had to start another circle all around and everybody helped him. Yeah, there was a couple rows of circles. Yes. Yep. It was pretty amazing. It was. Quite a few people showed up. We were proud of the littles, like littles even younger than her that prayed. That, you know, it was pretty, oh, yeah. pretty emotional. Yeah. I cannot yeah. believe I prayed. Yeah. Lots of kids. Lots of kids with the courage to pray in front of a big, big group like that. It was pretty neat to see. That makes tears come to my eyes right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was way cool. So so we're excited about that. And then sign up for email updates. You send an email out just once a week to give you an update of what we're doing for the week. And we have our website is up and running now. So the cool things about the website is that it's got a calendar on there. So if you ever wonder what's coming up, you can always look at the calendar. And then... And then all the, the teachings, we'll probably stop using the Dropbox after this week, and it's all online now. All part of the website, so you can just point and stream, or click and stream right from there. So, so with that, we'll, uh, we'll pray and we'll get started. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for the work you do in each one of our lives. Jesus, I'm thankful for the way you love us, the way you never leave us. When we ask you into our life, you never walk away. You never abandon us, you never forsake us. Jesus, I'm thankful for your sacrifice on the cross, that you were willing to go there to pay the penalty for each and every one of our sins, no matter what they are. No sin that you won't forgive, no sin too great that your love can't remove. And that when you forgive us, you remove it from our record. You never bring it up again. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful for the example you set. Help us to follow you. Help us to be a light and a witness to you in the world that we're in. I just ask you would watch over 
our community, that you would guide the leadership in this community, that the leaders that you've appointed would make the decisions that you've asked them to make, that they would follow you wholeheartedly. Lord, I ask that you would watch over um, our police departments, the sheriff's departments, that you would protect them both physically, um, but also protect them spiritually. They're on the front lines of that spiritual battle, and that you would protect them and their families um, for what they go through. Lord, I just ask that you would speak to our hearts today, and that the words spoken today would be your words, not mine you would guide us, you would lead us. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 11. We finished up chapter 10 last week. Made it through the whole chapter. We're not going to make it through all of chapter 11 this week. But we have a really cool, cool story to go through. Do you know what we're going to be reading through today? No. Did you read ahead? You didn't? Oh. This story is even cooler than the the talking donkey. It's even better. This is one of my favorites by far. Uh, We're going to start off in chapter 11 first of Romans. And then we'll go to 1 Kings. How about that? Yeah? You're good with that? So... Romans chapter 11, Paul is, all throughout the book of Romans, has pointed us, made it very clear who Jesus is, who God is, their love for us, uh, the authority that they have, um, and how they use that authority in our lives, and and how God is always just and always loving. Um, And if we look at it superficially, just at a quick glance, it's easy to make the wrong opinion or the wrong judgment on who God is, um, the, the wrong discernment. But when we look into it, when we study into it like we have been, and Paul has taken us all throughout um, the Old Testament and, and shown us who God is and how he doesn't change, how he always remains the same. And so here, um, Paul's still letting us know that he has a heart for Israel, for the, the nation of Israel, for his fellow Jews. He has a deep, deep burden for them. And remember, we've been through um, in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that God chose the whole nation of Israel, but not all of the nation of Israel chose God. And that really is burdened Paul's heart, that, that not all of his fellow Jews believe in the God that he believes in. And that, that bothers him, that, that saddens him, that deeply troubles him. So we kind of left off last week at the end of, of chapter 10, that last verse in 21, um, Paul says, But in regarding Israel, God said, All day long I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. So all day long God has opened up his arms to Israel. He just wants to receive them. He wants them to turn from their sinful ways, turn from their idols, and receive him, turn back to him. And he's opening up his arms. But all they do is, is rebel against him and, and, and are disobedient against him. They have no love for God. And that's where we ended last week. And here Paul will start in, in Romans 11, verse 1. And Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people, 
whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you realize what the scriptures say about this? Elijah the prophet complained to God about the people of Israel and said, and this is where we'll, we'll take off to Kings. Um, First Kings, we'll kind of start in chapter 16 and we'll hit some of the highlights. And then we're going to see what did Elijah say. But in order to look at what Elijah said, we need to know the context of why he said it and where he was at. And so, so we'll start in, in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. So at this point in the nation of Israel, the kingdom has been split. The nation has been split. You have the northern kingdom. There's 10 tribes in the northern kingdom and two tribes in the southern kingdom. Um, they've been split. The reason they've been split is, is God took away... Um, Part of the nation from Solomon because Solomon had turned from God. Solomon had, had married many wives, but many pagan wives, and they had led him into to worshiping pagan gods. So, so God's taken that kingdom away, and, and the way that worked is that after Solomon's death, Solomon's son was ruling, and some of the the tribes came to him and said, "Hey, can you remove this heavy hand? You, you tax us heavily, heavily, and and you have a great burden on us. Can you ease our burden?" And his son says, "No, I'm going to make your burden even harder." So they revolted against him, and, and, and now the kingdom is split. So we're in the, looking at the northern kingdom. That's where we'll pick up what Elijah said and how he came about this. And, and this is not the beginning of the northern kingdom. This is into it a little ways um, when King Ahab becomes king. And he's very, very evil king, it says. So but we'll, get, we'll jump through a few verses leading up to it, and then we'll get into our our story on Mount Carmel. So, 1 Kings chapter 16, starting in verse 29. So Ahab, son of Amari, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. That's the southern kingdom. He reigned in Samaria 22 years. But Ahab, son of Amari, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the example of Jeroboam, who was an evil king, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethabal of the Sidons, and he began to bow down and worship Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal and Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. So he was a a very evil and wicked man. He led the nation farther away from God than than they'd been. He set up these shrines, um, these Asherah poles, these places of worship. Um, Samaria was where they were supposed to be worshiping God. And, and he's setting it up where they're worshiping this false god, this false god of Baal. Um, and then we'll skip, we'll jump down to, to 1 Kings 17, verse 1. And this, this is where we'll introduce Elijah into the story. So now Elijah, who is from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, 
Go to the east and hide by the Kidrith Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside the Kidrith Brook, east of the Jordan River. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. So God has given Elijah this message to give to the king, and, and he does, and he tells the king that there's going to be a, a famine in the land um, because of your evil, because of what you've done. This is God's judgment on you. And so now God says, they're going to come after you, but I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. Go, go down to this brook and hide. And he does, and, and we'll skip over a few parts, but, but God also provides for him. The brook runs dry, but... God has another plan for Elijah and continues to provide for Elijah to give him what he needs um, and is taking care of him, of all of his needs. So he sends these ravens to go and collect bread and meat and bring it to Elijah every morning and every evening. You know, how amazing would that be? So Elijah, if you're Elijah, your faith should be strengthened by this. There's no other explanation than God is sending these ravens every morning and every night to bring you food, to supply you with what you need so that you can stay where you're at, safe um, and away from, from those who are looking for him. So we'll skip down to, to Kings 18, um, starting in verse 1. So later on in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, Go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Meanwhile, the famine had, been come, had become so severe in Samaria. So the famine is severe. It's gone on for three years now. But God sends word to Elijah, okay, go and tell Ahab that I'm gonna, the famine will soon be over. But God has a plan. And this is the, this is the story we're going to get into today. This is here in, in 18. One of, this is one of my favorite chapters by far. 1 Kings chapter 18, this contest on Mount Carmel. And we'll pick it up down in verse 17, just because we're going to go through the rest of verse or chapter 18 and, and chapter 19 today. So, But this story is amazing of how God opens the, the nation of Israel's eyes back to him, that he is the one and only true and living God. So here, 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 17. So Elijah's been told to go back to Ahab and tell him the famine will be over soon. So he does. And here we'll pick it up. Verse 17. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who, you, who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left. 
but Baal has 450 prophets. Now this part's important because this is what we're going to read in Romans, that Elijah feels all alone. He feels like he's the only one. But we're going to find out that that's not true, that his feelings have led him astray. So I'll continue on here in verse 23. Now bring two bowls, the prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish, and cut into pieces, and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl, and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. So they're going to set up these two sacrifices and nobody's going to set fire to it. They're going to call on their God, Baal. And if he comes and sets fire to the the sacrifice, then he's a real God. And Elijah's going to call on the true God. And when God sets fire to it, then the people will know that he is God. But he's not going to stop there. He's going to make it heavily favored for the other guys. He's going to put all the odds against him to to eliminate all the doubt that, that the nation of Israel has, that there isn't really a true God. So we'll continue on in verse 25. So then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it. Call on the name of your God, but don't set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. They danced, hobbling around on the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming, or he's relieving himself. He's in the bathroom, maybe. He just can't, you know... He's reading while he's in the bathroom, and it's just taking him a while. Keep calling, keep calling out to him, you know. So Elijah is is giving them the choice of the bulls, you know, giving them the first opportunity for this. Um, so I continue on here, or maybe he's away on a trip, or is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder, and following their normal customs, they cut themselves with knives and swords until blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. But still, there was no sound, no reply, no response. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired, as he repaired the altar of the Lord. So the altar of the Lord has been destroyed. It's been abandoned. They're worshiping Baal. So he repairs the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bowl into pieces, laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars of water, pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they had finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did it, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. So they've dumped 
10 gallons of water on the, on the sacrifice and on the wood, saturated the wood, filled the water around the trench. Everything is, is soaked, you know. And so here in verse 36, at the usual time for the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that you have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, fire from the Lord flashed down from heaven, burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down to the ground and cried out, The Lord is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all. Elijah took them down to the Kishron Valley and killed them there. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go get something to eat and drink. For I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and bowed low to the ground and prayed. With his face between his knees, he said to his servant, Go and look toward the sea. The servant went and looked, then returned to Elijah and said, I didn't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to go and look. Finally, the seventh time his servant told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Then Elijah shouted, Hurry to Ahab and tell him, Climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. And as soon, and soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a, ter- a terrific rainstorm. And Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to Jezreel. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel, who was his wife, the, the one that's led him even further astray. So he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezreel sent a message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. So Elijah has just seen this mighty thing happen on Mount Carmel. God has done this mighty work. He's come down. He's burned up this this sacrifice that was completely saturated, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones. I don't know if you know how much heat it takes to burn up stones, but it's a lot. The dust of the ground burned it all up. God, Elijah has seen God do this mighty work, and now this, this woman has threatened him with his life, and now he's afraid. Just like that. So you think of in your life, God does a, a work in your life, and then the very next thing, some, something comes and, and takes that, that joy away from you, that joy of what God has done away, and has, has made you afraid, or made you um, angry, or led you away from God, right? And now that's where Elijah is. He's, he's had this mighty contest at Mount Carmel, seeing God do this mighty work, and now something small has happened, something insignificant has happened, 
and now he's afraid. And it's taken him away from God. And that's what we're about to read. And we'll get to the end of 19 here is where we'll get to what Paul's talking about in Romans. But I think you need to, to have the whole story to understand the context of why Paul's bringing this up. And, and how Elijah's feelings are leading him astray. So he, he has this first, he has this feeling that before the contest on Mount Carmel that he's all alone. And we're going to figure out that that feeling was a lie. That that's not true. And now he has this feeling that he's afraid. He's afraid for his life, that God has left him somehow and is not going to protect him. He just saw God feed him and protect him for three years and provide for him while he was in hiding because this isn't the first time she's wanted to kill him or Ahab. They wanted to kill him from the beginning because they consider him a troublemaker. But God's protected him and he's known that. He's seen that. He's lived it for three years. God provided for him. Um, and we missed part of the story, but he provided for him with a, with a poor woman. That, that they were able to provide for them. And during that time, her son dies, and Elijah brings him back to life. You know, so God has done this amazing work through Elijah, and now he's got these feelings that he's afraid, that somehow God has left him or abandoned him. And we're going to see that his feelings are lying to him. So we'll continue on here in chapter 19. So Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. So he's given up. All hope is lost. He's seen God do a mighty work in his life the last three years. He saw this mighty contest on Mount Carmel just hours ago. And now he's, God, just, just kill me. Take my life. I'm done. It's over. I can't do this anymore. Um, then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead of you will be too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. So he, he's in fear. He's under a spiritual attack. And what the enemy's doing is the enemy often attacks us in many ways, but one of the ways the enemy attacks us is in our thought life um, and telling us things that we're not, telling us things that we can't do um, and discouraging us, trying to get us out of position God has us where he wants us and in a position he wants. And all the enemy wants to do, they can't take away our salvation. They can't separate us from our love from God. We've been over that. But the enemy can get us out of position, out of where God has called us to be. And that's what the enemy's trying to do here. And these spiritual attacks are intense. And you see here that, that he's exhausted from it. And, and that's, that is how it can be. These spiritual attacks, while they're just in your mind, they are exhausting. They will wear you out. And that's where he's at. And God's encouraging him and, and sends an angel to feed him, to, to bring him water, um, and, and to continue to do that until he's ready. And then God gives him the strength 
um, to make it to Mount Sinai. And that's important because that's the, the mountain where God was at. That's where God met Moses. And God is going to meet Elijah there. So that's why he's, okay, you think I've abandoned you. You, you think that everything's over. You're the only one left, Elijah. Well, I'm go, about to show you who the real God is. And I'm going to meet you on the mountain. So I'm going to give you this strength to go for 40 days and 40 nights and travel all the way to Mount Sinai. So he does in a way that only God can do. So Elijah can't deny that God is still with him. And so we'll continue on. Continue on. Um, But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. So again, he says it again. They've killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left. We're going to find out that's not true. That's how he feels. He feels all alone. He feels that God's abandoned him. But his feelings are lying to him, have led him astray. So here in verse 11, we'll continue in chapter 19. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face with his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, Go back the same way you came, and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael, the king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nishmi, to be the king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Sephaphat, from the town of Melitgbo, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hezreel will be killed by Jehu. And those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed to Baal or kissed him. So God is, is setting up the, the next scene, the next plan. And that's to, to anoint this king of Aram. And Aram is going to bring a judgment um, against Israel. And, and to anoint the next king of Judah um, and to anoint the next prophet. God's going to remove Elijah from the office of prophet. And I would say to you, that sounds pretty harsh, right? Like, oh, he just had a little faith wavering. But remember, Elijah taught the entire nation of Israel falsely. He told the entire nation of Israel that he was the only prophet left. And that wasn't true. And when you teach falsely, you're very in very dangerous territory. 
So he teaches, he felt that he was the only one left, taught the nation of Israel that, and now God is removing him. And I wouldn't say it's because he had this moment of lapse in faith, but I would say that he was teaching the nation falsely, that he's not the only one left. God makes it clear. There were 7,000 others who've never bowed their knee to Baal. You know, 7,000 others you don't know about, Elijah, but I do. I'm God. I'm in control. While you can't see the plan or, or the purpose for this, I have a plan and a purpose for this. And that my plan and purpose is always to bring people to come to know me, to open their eyes to me. And that's what he's trying to do with the nation of Israel. Yeah, God. Yeah, yeah, Elijah did. Well, I don't know if Elijah did. But God knew that he had these 7,000 and never Elijah bowed the knee to him. And Elijah came forward because they were afraid. Yep. Even though they didn't bow and went to the morning. But yeah. he didn't know he had anybody back in the Yeah, Elijah has this feeling, I'm all alone. I, I haven't met these other prophets, so I must be the only one. You know, it's all about me. Elijah is self-centered and focused at this point on himself and not what the bigger picture is. And that he's more worried about what everybody else is doing than what he's supposed to be doing. And he's not doing what God's asked him to do. So, and that's what, where Paul, that's, that's, this is what's brought us here, is where Paul's going to explain to us here in Romans. But to, to get that, that last verse, you know, that there were 7,000 others in Israel had not bowed the knee, you know, we had to put it in context. And, and you had to read all that Elijah had gone through and why he got to where he's at. Uh, and, and so we'll go back, we'll jump back to Romans chapter 11, verse 3. So Paul, when we left off in, in verse 2, Paul says, remember what Elijah said, you know, the prophet Elijah about the nation of Israel. That's what he told us in verse 2 and here in verse 3. We'll pick that up. So Elijah is talking to God, and we just read through this. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And do you remember God's reply? He said, no, I have 7,000 others who have never bowed the knee to Baal. So while the nation of Israel, while Paul may have this sense to feel that he's all alone, that all the rest of the nation has is, is abandoned God and it breaks Paul's heart, Paul's not going to be arrogant like Elijah and say, I'm the only one out here serving you, God. No, Paul doesn't know what God's doing and Paul doesn't need to know. God knows what he's doing. God is in, in control of of these 7,000 people and God's in control of the, the people that of the Jewish people during Paul's time that he's bringing to come to know them too. Um, but yet God is not in control of the whole nation, right? Because many of the nation have chose to reject God. So, so God still has this free will, gives this free will to us um, just as he gave to the nation of Israel to choose to receive him or choose to reject him. And the, the choice is ours. So, um, but even when people are wicked and reject God, hope is not lost. God has a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us, just like he has a plan and a purpose for them. Um, and it's our choice to receive Jesus and walk in that purpose of our lives, or it's our choice to reject him. But either way, God's will will be accomplished, um, and God's will will be done with or without us. You see, God doesn't need us. 
but he chooses to use us. But his will will be done. His objectives will be accomplished with or without us. He doesn't need the nation of Israel. He didn't need Elijah. If, if you don't want to do the job, that's fine. I'll, I'll raise up another. And I'll raise up all these others, you know, that, that will be obedient, that will do what I've asked. So while God doesn't need us, he chooses to use us, and it's our choice to be used by him. But we absolutely can reject that and say, um, well, Elijah doesn't lose his salvation. You're going to see Elijah in heaven, but he's not being used by God anymore at this point, and, and his rewards are, are probably going to be cut short. And that's probably not what God had planned for him. But Elijah is choosing not to be used by God anymore, and so God's raising up others. And that's what Paul's saying here. Don't get discouraged too bad for God. You don't know the work that God's doing. So we'll continue on here. Romans chapter 11, verse 5. It is the same today, for a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would be not would not be what it really is free and undeserved so remember a few weeks ago we went over in Deuteronomy chapter 7 God choosing the nation of Israel not because they were numerous not because they were had these great characteristics or values no he chose them just because he chose them because that was the best way for him to show his love and and we see this in the book of Hosea where Hosea is asked to marry a prostitute and, and she goes on to still live that life um, and, and it's the example that God is setting that he chooses the nation of Israel but they choose to, to um, live this adulterous life with these other gods, these false gods and even though they do that and even though Hosea's wife does that he still, Hosea goes back and chooses her again and redeems her again and that's the, what God's going to do with the nation of Israel. Even though they've rejected him and choose to live these false lives with these false gods, he still loves them, and he's still going to redeem them. And that's what he does for us. God is, we've learned through this that God is long-suffering, longer than he should be, longer than I would be if I was him, and that he's long-suffering and patient for us. You know? And I think in my life that I'm thankful that God was long-suffering and didn't you know, be done with me, you know, 12 years ago because it would not have gone well for me but he wasn't he put up with my all my selfishness my sin for 30 years before I chose to receive him and I'm thankful that he is long-suffering that he didn't just harden my heart and be done with me which we've seen we saw that with Pharaoh where he hardens Pharaoh's heart but not after giving Pharaoh many opportunities to turn to him and showing him in mighty ways, I am God. Kind of like this contest on Mount Carmel. God does that multiple times with Pharaoh and Pharaoh continues to choose to reject God. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you the desires of your heart. You want to you wanna live a life separate from me? I'll, I'll, I'll give you what you want. You want to have a hard heart towards me? I'll give you what you want. And that's what God still does today. For those that, that want to live a life separate from God at the end of their life, God gives that to him for all of eternity, okay? You, you don't want to receive me. You want to reject me and, and live a life away from me. I'll give you the desires of your heart. That's not God's desire, but I'll give you what you want, and you can live all eternity separate from me. You can live all of eternity in hell away from me. Um, so God does the same here. Um, 
so yeah so Deuteronomy chapter 7 we kind of we went through that you know why God chose them um verse 10 of Deuteronomy chapter 7 but he does not hesitate to punish those and destroy those who reject him so while he's a very loving patient God for those who reject him he will punish those he will reject those and we went over this with the story of Jacob and Esau we looked at what did God say before they were born you know Paul brought us to there and and he said that that the younger the older son would serve the younger son. So God says, this is my purpose, this is my plan for them. Um, and then at the end of the Old Testament, we read that God loved Jacob but rejected Esau. And that was after they had lived their lives. And why did God reject Esau? Because Esau rejected God. And it wasn't that God predetermined that I'm going to reject Esau or that I'm not going to allow Esau to love me. No, God gave Esau every opportunity to, to turn to him. And Esau chose not to. And at the end of that... At the end of Esau's life, God gave him what he wanted. You want to reject me and live apart from me? I'll, I'll give that to you, Esau. We see that with, uh, with Judas. You know, God knows that Judas is going to betray him and never going to receive him. But still, Jesus gives him every opportunity to turn to him, even though he knows. Even, even all the way up to the very end, where he washes Judas' feet. So this, here, this is his enemy, his enemy that's going to inflict, um, or is going to bring upon him, great pain and sorrow, and he still washes his feet. So God has given him every opportunity to turn to him, even though he knows he won't. And that's the God that we serve, the loving, kind God that we serve. Gives even those who reject him every opportunity to turn to them before he passes his judgment on to them. So, but here we also, oh, I got a little behind But here, okay, so back chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, we also get to read what is grace. And grace is undeserved kindness, and it is freely given to whomever God chooses to give it to. So we have judgment, we've, we've committed a crime, we've sinned, and there's a penalty for that, a judgment for that. And that's what we fully deserve. But mercy says, yes, you're guilty and you deserve this, but we're not going to give you that judgment, we're not going to make you serve that penalty. And then grace takes it one step further. Not only are we not going to give you that judgment to make you serve that penalty, but we're going to give you this undeserved gift, this unmerited favor of God. So you think about it, you receive Jesus into your life. He forgives you. He doesn't judge you for the and convict you of what you're guilty of. He gives you a pardon. And then on top of that, he gives you grace. He gives you this life in paradise with him forever. And that's what grace is. And Paul's explaining that to us now. Um, and also what grace is, is, is our relationship with God is not transactional. We talked about this yesterday at the men's study. It's not a transactional. God doesn't owe us anything. It's not, God, I did all these steps for you. I read my Bible today. I prayed today. I was kind to others, you know, loving to my wife. Now you owe me this, God. No, no, no. That is never the way it is. It's, God, I did all these things because I want to grow closer to you. I want to know you. I want you to be involved in my life. And whatever God does for us is just because he loves us, just because he wants to give us this undeserved gift, whatever that is. But it's not transactional. It's not a one-for-one. One. It's not, I did all these works, and now you owe me whatever you owe me. No, God doesn't owe us anything. I do all these works 
because I want to grow closer to him. I want to be more like his son, Jesus. That's what it's for. It's not for what I can get out of it. Um, And there's many in the church today that it's a, what can I get out of it? I'll give so I can get. And that's not the way it works with God. I give because I love and God provides for me, just like he provided for Elijah. All that time in the wilderness that Elijah's in hiding for three years, God provides for him. And never did he go without food or water. God always provided for him. Not because Elijah did anything right, and not because Elijah was going to do something right, right? Because we see that Elijah was unfaithful, but because God loved him. So we'll continue on Romans chapter 11, verse 7. So this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they are looking for so earnestly. A few have, the chosen ones, the ones God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened. As the scriptures say, God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day, he has shut their eyes so they do not see and closed their ears so they do not hear. So two things in these two verses. One, we read that the ones that God has chosen, we have to remind ourselves back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, who did God choose? He chose the whole nation of Israel, but not all the nation has chosen him. So the whole nation of Israel is chosen, and, and some have chosen to receive God's message. And, but the rest, he says, their hearts were hardened, but not after God gave them every opportunity to open his eyes to them. And we're going we're gonna to go to Isaiah chapter 29, and we're going to look at this, this next verse where it says, The scriptures say God has put them into a deep sleep to this day and shut their eyes so that they do not see and close their ears so that they do not hear. Um, remember, God gave Pharaoh many chances to turn to God. God gave Judas all the opportunities to turn to him. Um, and even though God knows who's going to reject him, he still gives them every opportunity to repent and turn to him. And he's doing the same thing with the nation of Israel. And if we look at this superficially, just quickly, it seems like, oh, that's a harsh God. He's not even going to allow them. He puts them in this deep sleep and won't even give them the opportunity to turn to him. But that's not the case. Remember, we've been over this. This is why Jesus taught in parables and stories. If we want to look at the story superficially, quickly from the outside and make a quick judgment on God, we're going to make the wrong judgment. We're going to come to the wrong conclusion on who God is. But when we look deeper into it, when we go deeper into the story, then we're going to see who is God really. And really he is this loving God, this patient God. So we'll go to Isaiah chapter 29, verse 9. And we'll put this, this into context. So Isaiah 29, verse 9. Are you amazed and incredulous? Don't you believe? So God, at this point, is, is trying to get the nation of Israel to turn back to him, to open their eyes to him, to receive him. Um, and they're, they're still being obstinate and, and choosing not to. So, again, verse 9. Are you amazed and incredulous? Don't you believe it? Then go ahead and be blind. You are stupid, but not from wine. You stagger, but not from liquor. For the Lord has poured out on you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes for your prophets and your visionaries. So God's telling the nation of Israel what he's going to do, and they don't believe him. 
So he's, he's given them a foretelling of what he's going to do. He's going to bring them, um, open their eyes, and they're choosing, nope, we still don't want you, God. We still want you out of our lives. And so God's giving them the desires of their heart. He's given them all these prophets, all these people that are pointing to him, trying to turn the nation back to him, and they're still choosing to reject him. To I, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it, God. And so he's giving them these blind eyes and, and hardening their hearts from him. So continue on Isaiah chapter 29. All the future events in this vision are like a sealed book to them. When you give it to those who can read, they will say, I can't read it because it's sealed. And when you give it to those who cannot read, they will say, we don't know how to read. And so the Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship for me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. So the word rote here is a pretty odd word, but rote is the definition of that is learned by habitual repetition. So you learn something by habitually repeating it over and over again or, or doing it over and over again. You've you got to beat into your head, maybe is a better way to say that. Another way that last verse, um, verse 13 is read is their worship is a farce. For they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. So what's the, what, if we put it into context of these blinded their eyes, it's not that he blinded their eyes and gave them no opportunity to know him. No, they know his word. They have his word. They choose not to see it. Um, and we've, we've been over this many times. You take one, one sentence, one verse out of the Bible and make a doctrine out of it. Make this is how God's going to rule and you're going to be led astray, and you're going to lead others astray. I can take you to a verse of the Bible that says there is no God, but when I read the sentence before that, the sentence is, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that's what people often do, and that's what the nation of Israel has done. We went over uh, before Isaiah chapter 53, and it clearly states that Jesus is coming, but he's going to come as a servant and suffer and die. And the nation of Israel knows that. The book of Isaiah was something that they had, they would have been over many times in synagogue and in their formal teaching as kids in their, you know, more or less private school or Jewish private school. They would have gone through as kids when they're measure, memorizing the Torah or the Old Testament. Eli, the book of Elijah would have been part of this, that they would have known this, something they've quoted regularly. So they know that they know this area of scripture, but they don't want to. They don't want to read that one. That one doesn't sound good. That we're going to suffer. But the one that sounds good is when he comes back the second time as this conquering king. So that's what we're going to hang our hat on. So they've chosen to teach themselves and others this. Oh, God is going to, God's going to fit their mold. He's going to fit their man-made rules. And they're going to say that these rules are from God when they're not, is what God's saying. So if you're going to do that, I'm going to blind your eyes. You, choose, you chose to be blind to what I've shown you. I've shown you who I am. I've shown you who my son is coming to do, what he's coming to do and who he is. And you choose not to believe that. You choose to be blind to that. I'm going to blind your eyes then. And you won't be able to see. So he gave them every opportunity first and then blinds their eyes. Does that make sense? That's an important one. Because some people think that all oh, this harsh God, he, he doesn't even allow it. You know, when we talked through with Jacob and Esau, it sounded like, oh, he was harsh with Esau. He, he rejected Esau before he was ever born. No, no, no. He rejected Esau at the end of the Old Testament. The very last book of the Old Testament is when he says that. Long after Esau had lived and died, 
and lived his life and made his decisions. And here we have the same thing. They've chose to blind themselves to God's truth. And they've chose to come up with their own man-made rules and traditions. This rote, this habitual, traditional, this is what we're going to do over and over. This is just how we do it. And this is from God, they'll say, when it's not, is what he's saying. God says, this isn't from me. These religions and these traditions are not from me. And that's, Jesus would say that over and over again when he was here on earth. That, that you have these traditions, these man-made ideas, and your heart is far from me. I don't, I don't care about the works you've done. I care about your heart. That's what I'm after. Um, so, so again, the nation of Israel, you know, the, the Bible is taken out of context. They've taken it out of context. Many people now take it out of context. And that's why we feel it's so important. When we look at the Bible, when we make um, doctrinal, or this is how God rules, or who God is, we look at the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation because that's what it is. Um, it's not one verse, one area of scripture that we're going to make a doctrine out of. That's how all these weird man-made false teachings come about. They've taken one obscure place in, in the Bible and said, oh, this is who God is. This is how we should govern ourselves or rule. And it's out of context. It doesn't line up with the rest of the Bible. And the nation of Israel has done that also. So they say they believe in God. But really, they want nothing to do with God. They say they believe in God, but their lives don't reflect a relationship with God. Outwardly, they say, I'm a believer, but inwardly, they are spiritually dead. And God has given them the desires of their heart. God is giving them what they want. God is granting their heart's desire. God has closed their eyes to him because that's what they chose to do. They chose to have a closed eye to him, not seeing all that God had, who God really is. They have this false opinion of God, this false judgment that they've made of who God is because they didn't look at the whole context and God's giving them that. Okay, you don't want to look at it all, then I'll just blind your eyes and you won't be able to. I gave you every opportunity and now I'm going to give you your desire. This is what you want and I'll give it to you. It's not what I want. It's not what God's saying. It's not what I want. I don't want this for your life. I want you to repent and be saved. But I will give you your desires. Um, and they don't want to see God for who he really is. And now they can't see God for who he really is. God's given them what they want. So we'll go back and we'll finish up here in Romans chapter 11, verse 9. So likewise, David said, let their bounty table become a snare, a trap that makes them think all is well. Let blessings cause them to stumble and let them get what they deserve. Let their eyes go blind so they cannot see and let their backs be bent forever. So oftentimes people think that, oh, I, I'm blessed. I have these riches in life. God must have favor on me. Yes, I have this sin in my life, but God must think it's okay for me to do because, you know, look what he's done for me. You know, God needs me to serve him. God needs me to do this work for him. How would God do this without me? Kind of this idea of Elijah. Oftentimes you hear that with pastors who are, are stealing from the church or living this this sinful life and and afterwards they talk to him or they interview him and they'll say well i thought that god needed me i thought that god was okay with that yeah it wasn't right but look at all the ways god blessed this church and how it grew or look at all the things god did in my life and how successful i was so god must have had favor with me no no no. you've mistaken his long suffering for his favor and he's god is never okay with sin in our lives god never condones sin god never approves of sin all sin separates us from God. But 
all sin can be forgiven when we receive Jesus into our hearts and ask for that forgiveness. So, um, and really the riches in their life is, is probably more of a sign of greed and covetousness than God's favor or blessing, but they've mistaken it. They've twisted and perverted God's word, twisted and perverted who God really is to fit their own agendas. Um, so, and that's all the reward they'll ever see is that a little bit of riches here in this life and, and for eternity, if they really are believers and, and they're living this sinful life, does that mean that, that Jesus leaves them? No, he doesn't leave them, but they're going to be in eternity with very little to show for it. And that's not what we want. We're, this is all of eternity. I would like to have a lot to show for it. I'd like to be faithful to God, even when it's not easy, for him to strengthen my faith and grow me closer to him. And that's that um, process of sanctification, the Bible calls it, being set apart for God. Jesus was set apart for God's purpose, and we are too. So, Romans 11, verse 11. Didn't God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? No, or I'm sorry. Let me start over. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. God wants the Jews to to receive Jesus as their Messiah and be saved. God wants the whole world to receive Jesus and be saved. Um, John 3.16 For God loved the world so much the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone, everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So God's desire is that the whole world would come to receive him. The whole world would be saved. So Romans 11 verse 12. And now if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation... Think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. And the they there at the end, when, they find, when the nation of Israel finally accepts Jesus as their Messiah. Jesus is their, is their suffering servant and then their conquering king. That Jesus really is God. How much better will that be? We'll kind of skip ahead because we'll end here today. But, no. but Romans 11 verse 25. So... I want you to understand this mystery, Paul's saying, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of the Gentiles comes to Christ. And what happens at that point? These are speaking of end-time events. At the end time, at the end of all of this, where does it all lead? It leads to God building a new heaven and a new earth. Free from sin, free from sadness, free from death and decay. And that's where it ends. So Paul's saying, you know, how much, how much better is it going to be for the whole world? Well, when, when the Jews finally open up their eyes to who Jesus is, is when the full number of the Gentiles has come to receive Jesus. And that is the speaking of the end time events. And at the end of all of this, we're in paradise with God for all of eternity. A new heaven and a new earth. Not a corrupt earth like we have now. No death, no decay, no sadness, no, no hurting, no, no hardships. Just paradise with God. So how much better it will be for all of us? It will be a lot better. So, and that's where we'll end our study today.
Do we have any questions? Do you have questions? What did you think of the story of Elijah? I liked it. You liked it? Was it better than the talking donkey one? The talking donkey one's still the best one? Okay. Um, all right. Why did he mock them? Why did he make fun of them? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. So they're, they're serving this false god, Baal, who doesn't really exist. So And Elijah knows this, right? So Elijah knows that there's no fire coming down from heaven to burn up their sacrifice, even though they're crying out to their God. So he starts making fun of them, you know. Well, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's going to the bathroom and he can't hear you. Maybe you should shout louder. Maybe he's on a trip somewhere far away. And Elijah knows that all this isn't true, so he's making fun of them. He's trying to to provoke an emotion of, you know, how foolish they really look. He's helping them with their excuses. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you get that now. Yeah. And he didn't punish Elijah for his lack of faith. I don't think he punishes us for lack of faith, but. And, teach, and teaching that to the nation. Okay, I think so that's, that's a big deal. I guess he was Even not. though they were shy about coming forward, they were still believers, but they were, you know, they were afraid of persecution. So, you know, he wasn't, I mean, he did have, but isn't that, it's a huge lack of faith in the sense that here he's taught all, he's teaching people, are trying to guide them through faith, and yet he didn't have any, apparently, did for so long, and then all of a sudden, here's like, did he know about, did God not tell him about this? I guess that's mm-hmm. where I got yeah. confused. He did mm-hmm. not know. Elijah didn't know about the other 7,000. He didn't 7, know about the 7,000 prophets, but he was teaching them that, or he was guiding them and telling them, I am the only one. Yes, I'm the only one left. And that's where God got angry, or said, this, no, you're not the only one. How do you think you could be the only one? Yeah. There's 7,000 others that haven't bowed the knee to bail, but you think you're the only one. The other 7,000 would be just like in, in Roman times when they had to pray and practice in the dark in secret because they were going to get hunted down. That's probably their particular thought process at the time until That's a very Elijah point. come out with a little bit more force, and there just wasn't enough time to say, hey, you know, what do we got with you? You know, that's a very good point. No, that's yeah. So you have this whole nation that's worshiping falsely, and and if you come out as you're still worshiping God, they're probably going to kill you. Yeah, just like they want to kill Elijah. So these others are are worshiping God, but they're doing it underground. They're in secret, and and oftentimes. Could you imagine if Elijah just sat there and said, "Okay," and see what happened? You know, to those people who were going to try and get him. You know, they, just like the fire. Kind of like the nation of China, you know, we're gonna make make that. Christianity illegal, and, and what happens? 
Okay, it goes underground and it, it spreads even better, even faster, even more. And when they think that the, the Christianity has been snuffed out of their nation, it turns out it hasn't. Just like in Acts with the, the, the church, you know, there's persecution. So what does the church do? They go underground and they go into hiding, like you're saying. And, and, and now they're, the church is spreading out and, right. and growing even faster. So, yeah. so while, while it looks hopeless, God still has a plan. And that's, and yeah, it's, it's not, Elijah's not being punished for lack of faith. Everyone has lack of faith. I think of why Elijah was punished is he taught the entire nation falsely. And that's a big deal. Okay. And you're told, God, well, God makes it clear that, that, that if you want to teach, you're going to be held to a stricter judgment. Okay. That that's very clear. Teach falsely who God is. Lying. Yes. And when you're lying about God, <laughs> that's a big you know, deal. That's 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 yes. the lie. Yes. That and if you quickly look at that story, it looks like oh, he had this lack of faith and God has punished him. Okay, so but I think if you got to go back, you got to go back to where he teaches the entire nation of Israel. One of the first thing he says is, is yeah, I'm the only one here left serving God, and that's not true. That's false. And teaching isn't just from like a pulpit. Teaching is, I have a conversation with somebody at work about who God is. And if I misrepresent God, I'm teaching falsely. I'm, I'm pointing them in the wrong direction. And, and God makes it clear that those who, have, who teach, there's a stricter judgment that falls on you. So, and Elijah's reaction to if he's like talking and then all of a sudden, dude, we're here. Yep. I am not necessarily going out and doing this, but I'm. Yeah, yeah. what about the, if he invited those other 7,000 to come up? Right. And that would open the nation's eyes to, oh, oh, God hasn't left us. You know, right. Here we are. Because I don't think the whole nation was wanting to live evilly. There's some leaders There's that wanted to lead like that way. Does, but people are confused, it. yeah. So yeah. God's not pointing them, their lives not pointing them to God. Are weak because of the repercussions from that little evil empire. You know, I was like, when people stand up, and again, things like you said, look, today, like I don't know what that word, but today, everything is taken out of context, content, or it's not fully, they're missing pieces of parts, and so everything is taken in a different way because the full information, it all well, the information all isn't there. Leveling charges and things against other people right now across the country. Yep. They don't bring up the full thing. Well, we're, we're just going to use this one statement that you made. But uh, they're taking no what God. little they do have. <laughs> no, and like you said, it's, that was the word, word, it's, word. it's like brainwashing. It's yep. using the Holy Spirit yep. over and over again. Not that you believe it. Yep. That's why it's super important. One of the things we've always been taught over the last 12 years, as long as we've been with Calvary, I would say, is chapter, interprets chapter, verse, interprets verse. 
And then we did get into it took a long time to go through a whole study of false teaching. And now it's, it happens even right now, right today. We're in, in these um, teachers that are out there right now, they want to come out to report. But you talk like tools and how they, they, they actually, you know, in front of thousands and millions of people, because they're watching it online, they even did stuff out of, would you say, out of context. She'll say one thing, and it's like the, oh, and it's all feel good, it's all, it's all feel good, but they don't, they don't teach completely. They didn't take that little Like, and that's why I was not sure about when you were talking from, about false prophets, or just, like, you know, Sam Rob, with the different books that I've read, and you're like, well, think, think about, and, and you go, okay, what, truly put them in that position, but at the same time, what's their end game? A lot of time it's money. A lot, a lot saying. of time it's, it's power and pride. Right, and that's you know, what I'm saying. Well, I, I taught this way, it must be right. They can't go back on it now. I can't, I can't admit I was wrong and ask for forgiveness. So because I'm going to continue to teach that way. There's a lot of people out there that think this has happened like in two weeks. This is decades, like you said, of years in of No, because the, the doctrine or the, the belief in God is what this is that if wherever God guides, he'll provide. Right. And that right. if, if he really wants a church here or there, right. he'll provide for that church. Right. And it's not up to the to people to go make that happen. You don't need right. campaigns. If God wants right. you to build a new building, you know, God will provide for that. Well, right. You don't need a building campaign and to think through all this and a marketing right. campaign with it. Because it becomes a business at that point. It's no and longer a church. Exactly. Yes. And is, are you really trusting that God's going to guide and provide? Or? And I'm like, okay, that's what's wrong. And thank you to them because I, I have never learned so much. And I'm like, okay, that's Oh, yeah. It makes a big difference going through. So... So when God brings up Elijah in the New Testament, because remember, we've seen this many times in the Old Testament, lack of faith, or, um, or in this case, teaching false saying God brings a strict judgment. But in the New Testament, when we read about Elijah, we don't read about any of that. This is what, we, this is what in James chapter 5, um, it's like around verse 16. So confess your sins to each other, pray for each other, so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human, as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly, no rain would fall. None fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield crops. So we read about Elijah's faithfulness in his prayer, and he prayed and rain stopped for three and a half years, prayed again, and then it rained and 
we don't read about any of the other stuff Elijah did. And the reason for that is because God does what he says he's going to do. When we ask him to forgive us for our sins, he forgives. But the way he forgives, he removes it from our record. That those sins were nailed to the cross. So Elijah obviously lived in sin. He taught falsely. He had his doubts and his fears that we're told not to have. But he asked for forgiveness at some point. And that those sins got nailed to the cross. Jesus died for those sins. And now when God recounts Elijah... He just recounts all the faithful things he did. And why does God do that? Because it's all the bad things that Elijah did are on the cross. They're not on Elijah's record anymore. So that's, that's how God views it. That's how God views us. Because there's this, well, one, there's this idea that, oh, you, you'd be healed if you had more faith. No, 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 that's not true at all. God didn't punish Elijah for his lack of faith. He punished him for teaching the nation falsely. And that was a big deal to God. And even in this verse, James five sixteen, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Well, some churches have taken that out of context that you need to confess your sins to a, a priest, right? And, you, and only he can help you through that. No, no, we're told, what we're really told to do is, is you have this fellowship, this, this brother, you know, like a, a group of men or, or a friend that you're going to go to and Hey, this is what I'm struggling with. Can you pray for me? Can you help me through this? Yes. It's, it's, it's confessing to God our sins, but you're asking another friend to help you. Hey, I'm struggling with this. Pray for me. Can we talk through this? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So, is that all the questions? We sing one last song.